0: deals a lot with off-season cruising on the chuck in an excerpt from the chapter called the last tourist this audio segment covers a trip off-season to cortez island von danup inlet the morning dawns clear and the chuck is smooth from the candle's balcony There are no whitecaps visible anywhere. And the few sailboats visible have their sails stowed. A very good sign. The marine forecast shows great conditions on the chuck and a forecast to match. The high is still sitting persistently off the coast. And the low to the east has filled enough to reduce the winds. And the forecast is for northwest winds, light to moderate. The perfect directional indicator for good conditions for cruising. Loading the boat for the first trip of the season, call it the September season, is always a major chore. That's particularly true today because our bicycles are on the loading list. So are provisions for several boating trips up the strait. Few boats are headed north in September. Most are already home after a summer or a few weeks of sailing. Those that remain are headed homeward to the south. And Margie and I have been watching that southward stream for the past week, imagining our Bayliner streaming north against the tide of humanity. It's a pleasant image. I grind away at the starter after a case of obvious overprime. As I give it a rest and prepare for a flooded start, it is beginning to look like this trip is over before it has begun. But just as the battery seems to be losing its capacity to continue, the engine catches. Vroom, vroom. A wonderful sound. The sea is nearly calm as we cruise northward. Near Dinner Rock, two porpoises play 50 feet to the west of our path. It's going to be a good pull season on the chuck. At Lund, the field dock is empty when we arrive, except for one sailboat at the end of the dock probably parked while the crew visits Nancy's Bakery or the hotel restaurant. During the summer you'll never see this since all boats are hustled in and out of the fuel dock without time for even temporary parking. The sign shows summer hours and winter hours. The summer hours are scratched out and the revision is unreadable. Are you still on summer hours? I ask the girl who hands me the gas holes. Guess so, she replies. We're open until 6 p.m. now. When does that change, I ask? We plan to make this a frequent fuel stop in the weeks ahead. It really isn't even autumn yet. I've heard we're going to new hours soon, but I don't think it will be before the end of September. That's almost winter. Leaving Lund, I angle the boat west of Thun Passage. We'll miss the best view of the Copeland Islands, but we don't want to waste the daylight. The outside passage of the islands will be quicker since we won't have to slow to minimum wake speed. Our route takes us up Lewis Channel and halfway up the channel the wind changes. We leave the nearly calm conditions and encounter a moderate north wind with the airflow and accompanying small waves now directly off our bow. It's not rough, but it is a change. Slowly, the engine begins to wind down for no apparent reason. At first, I think it is merely the throttle vibrating back towards idle, so I push it forward. The boat continues to mush and come off plane, although the engine sounds healthy. We're losing power, says Margie, or is it the wind? My thoughts exactly. Usually a wind doesn't produce this big a change in our forward progress, and we're obviously continuing to decelerate. But the engine sounds smooth. It's not a flame out. Call it a flame down. Finally, I give in to the situation and reduce the power to idle. We bob in the choppy conditions in a narrow section of Lewis Channel. And there are three boats streaming south off our bow. We've seen few boats today. And now there are three, two cruisers and a commercial fishing boat. A drifting course provides them a temporary obstacle, but they adeptly maneuver past us. I work the throttle forward and back in neutral, sounds fine, and try reversing the engine under a bit of power. Maybe we're picking up some seaweed, I say. Sometimes reversing throws it off. Could it be the tide mixed with the wind? asked Margie. It seems like we lost power gradually. I thought about that too, I reply. The wind is from the north and the tide is ebbing from the south. I know that tides that oppose the wind are the most challenging, although today's ride is puny and the wind is no big deal. I power up again and all is fine. No problems at all. Just one of those things you can't explain. I suppose it could have been seaweed, but I doubt it. We round the northeast tip of Cortez Island and turn west through Sudo pseudo-channel towards our overnight destination, Mandanap Inlet. The inlet forms a long sliver into Cortez Island, so deep that it almost connects with Squirrel Cove on the other side of the island. There's one rock to watch out for, on the way through the narrowest portion of the inlet, but it's clearly designated on the GPS and easily avoided. How many boats here? taunts Margie. We're hoping it's none, but anything less than 20 would be a joy. I'll guess only two, I reply. I'll go with five, she predicts. There are seven, and that leaves a lot of space. We tuck into the back bay, dropping anchor near the charted hiking path to Squirrel Cove. According to our map, the trail runs along the bay with one access point on the shoreline. After anchoring, we launch our dinghy, Mr. Bathtub, to explore the bay. We brought a small backpack, prepared for the hike to Squirrel Cove. Just in case Maryland's Salmon Shack is open at the cove, we also have money in the pack. Marilyn's hours of operation are far from reliable, but when she is open, it's a sure treat. Her berry pie is amazing. Mr. Bathtub cruises slowly with his three-horsepower motor, and when Margie and me as a full load, we carefully avoid any sudden moves. I steer by shifting my weight, and we scout the back bay for the beach trailhead. There are several promising spots, but... Nothing distinct and obvious. Finally, I return to a prospective spot and run Mr. B into a coarse gravel beach with the typical but uneasy grind and crunch of fiberglass against gravel. We pull him to the high tide mark and tie up to a hefty tree branch. There is no trail here, but it is fairly easy going in the steep climb up the hill. I'm certain the trail runs parallel to the shore here my boating guidebook, so it is merely a matter of climbing until we find it. After a bit of switchback hiking to avoid large fallen logs, I find the trail and await Margie's slow but sure arrival. The trail is national park quality, built by the local First Nations tribe, well maintained and landscaped with occasional logs at the sides. We start to the west, which leads to an uphill and southward flow of the trail. Judging by the gradient of the climb, there is no immediate danger on Donlop Inlet will be flooded through to Squirrel Cove, although a glance at a map might indicate otherwise. It is less than three kilometers between the two coves along a small ridge that prevents a natural geographic divide in the island. But the elevation striding the gap is enough to keep the cove separate until the next biblical flood. It's uphill just a bit further than all downhill, I announce as we start to puff and pan on a long uphill stretch. I've heard that before, notes Margie, and she has, because it is my way of trying to convince her and myself that it is worth continuing with a relief and reach. I tend to announce this decoration of guaranteed downhill gradient as if I know what I'm talking about. I don't. Signs along the way clearly announce our progress, with countdown kilometers every half click. We start in here at 2.5 and by 1.0 we are still climbing distinctly uphill. It's gotta start down soon, I suggest, less convincingly this time. Or else it's a cliff at the Squirrel Cove end, says Margie. We're doing fine on this low-intensity hike. But it is amazing that there is more uphill than downhill. Sea level on both sides is a guarantee. The phenomenon is not unlike flying over a saddle in the clouds, climbing to avoid the turbulence and icing conditions inside the tops of Cumulus. It looks like the clouds have topped out. So, a little more climb and a few more minutes should lead to a downhill run and clear skies beyond. But sometimes, the climb just continues. Finally, near the .5 kilometer sign, the descent begins. But it's still not steep. Sea level is far below us. The hike back to the boat will be mostly downhill, I state. Of course, mathematically, that's impossible. A split in the trail is clearly marked with a three year old sign Squirrel Cove, that way. Vandana, back where we came. And Maryland's Takeout, directly to the left. That Maryland has a knack for advertising. The Squirrel Cove on the sign is the First Nations town rather than the anchorage. Merlin's salmon shack sits at the entrance to the anchorage. I'm glad I've brought cash just in case I have a chance to spend it. We start down the long entryway descent to Maryland's. There's little chance she'll be open. Even during the heart of summer, her hours are sporadic, but it would be a welcome treat. The path gets steeper. And the signs keep hikers hopeful. Maryland's takeout. Arrows are planted every few hundred meters, even though there are no intersection decisions, like freeway signs that remind you of an approaching eat here location. Maryland has a wise advertising manager. Maryland needs to bring in the road crew to fix these potholes. I yelled back to Margie. Was starting to fall behind in the descent. Needs work, she yells back. The trail is now narrower and rocky. In fact, we are following a stream bed that doubles as a trail as it descends to the cove below. It's dry now, but you need a white water raft to get to Maryland's in the spring. The polished rocks left behind by the stream make footing difficult in the steep descent. Margie's pace slows dramatically in these conditions. No twisted ankles, please. It's three clicks back to the boat. Soon I'm well below Margie and picking up the pace. It's getting dark in the woods, and she doesn't need to go the final few hundred meters to a closed salmon shack. I'll hustle up my pace, reach the closed shack, and return uphill to meet her before she wastes her effort and our time on the final descent. We could then turn around and be back at the boat by sunset. On the other hand, if Maryland is open, it would be unique to treat Margie to a slice of berry pie on a to-go plate in the middle of the forest. Through the trees I spot water. In a few more steps, the south end of the Anchorage pops into view. I stop to admire the scene Three boats are scattered in the southern part of the cove, an area that normally houses twenty boats in the heart of summer. I can see the edge of Maryland's small dinghy dock, but shack is still out of sight. Across a final stretch of narrow wooden bridge, the shack jumps out of the trees. A close sign hangs in the window. I linger for a few minutes, remembering the atmosphere at this location during the summer. Probably no one has been here in weeks. Two empty wine bottles sit discarded along the edge of Maryland's deck. An untold story of recreational boaters or locals. After a brief pause to say goodbye to summer, I begin to climb without the berry pie. I am surprised to meet Margie only a short distance up the stream path. Either she has hiked downhill faster than I expected, or I lost some moments in time on the deck at Maryland's. No pie today, I announce. What a surprise. Equally aware of the approaching darkness, Margie is quick to agree to start upward again, with only my reports of the cove below. She, too, can envision the difference in the seasons. You don't have to stand on Maryland's deck understand.